Welcome to A Voice for the Kids, Child USA's podcast series with newsmakers, experts, and survivors. Child USA is a nonprofit think tank that puts the best social science with the best legal analysis to end child abuse and neglect. Thanks for joining today. I am honored to have uh, Jim DeRogatis with us today. He's a music critic, uh, written for years for the Chicago Sun-Times, and he was one of the whistleblowers that made the R. Kelly cases happen. Uh, we're going to talk today about the trial and the verdict, uh, and thank you so much, Jim, for joining us. Hi, Jim. It's so great to have you today. Oh, well, it's a pleasure to be here. I wish we were talking about something cheerier, but uh, I guess we got the outcome that had been 25 years late, but better than never. Well, it's really an interesting case study of justice for child sex abuse victims and sex abuse victims generally, the way the system made them wait. But let's start with just give us a quick recap, please, of how you got involved with the R. Kelly case, covering it. I know that Mary was a part of that. So let's let's just lay the groundwork a little bit. Well, I had received a fax uh, at the Chicago Sun-Times, where I was the pop music critic, in November of 2000, that said uh, I, it was in response to an album review, Marcy. I was the pop music critic, uh, and I had compared Kelly to Marvin Gaye. And the anonymous correspondent said, Marvin had his problems. They're nothing like Robert's problem. Uh, Robert's problem is young girls. Wow. And as long as I'd been in Chicago since the early 90s, uh, there had been rumors. R. Kelly likes them young, always in air quotes, an offensive phrase when you realize what that meant. He had illegally married his 15-year-old protege when he was 27, Aaliyah, in 1994. Both record companies and both artists and both artist teams had tried hard to make it go away. You know, was she really 15? Maybe she was 18. Vibe magazine had published the marriage certificate and uh, listed Aaliyah's age fraudulently as 18. And I had interviewed Aaliyah months after that marriage, just weeks, really. And she had said, oh, don't believe all that mess. We're close and people took it the wrong way. It wasn't until that fax, which really named some specifics, a lawsuit that had never been reported and uh, uh, other sources, an ongoing Chicago police investigation. But even then, Marcy, I'm, uh, I'm not claiming to be super reporter. I, uh, it was the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I left it on the slush pile in my big wire basket on my desk of press releases and hate mail that were destined for the trash. I went home. I had Thanksgiving. Um, but, the, you know, something about that fax, I, I'd initially thought, you know, this was a player hater, somebody trying to down a, a black superstar beloved in the black community in Chicago. Uh, I went back in Monday and 
read it again. Uh, I called the Chicago Police Department and I said, do you have a Sergeant Chinahuski? And the operator said, nobody by that name. I'd spelled it off the facts. And I almost hung up then. And then I said, wait, wait a minute. Is there anybody with a similar Polish surname in sex crimes? And I was connected to a sergeant. I said I was from the Sun-Times. I was calling about the investigation into R. Kelly. And she said, oh, I was wondering how long it would take before somebody called about that. I can't talk to you. And she hung up. And so I walked into the city editor's office and I said, Don, I think there's something here. Don Hayner was our city editor. And what rang a bell for him was uh, the mention of a lawsuit. And it was hard for both of us to believe that a lawsuit against this man who already was the most successful R&B singer in Chicago history, bigger than Curtis Mayfield, bigger than Shaka Khan. You know, he's, I can't believe this was never reported, but he called in the court's reporter, Abdon Palish, and we found that lawsuit, which had been buried in the Cook County archives, and that got us off and running for six weeks. The first story ran December uh, 21, 2000, and... Um, you know, we had talked to so many people, rung so many doorbells, uh, reported not only in depth that first lawsuit, victim number one, Tiffany Hawkins, 15 years old in 1991, uh, had been settled out of court. Uh, we reported all of that and the, got to the bottom of sealed documents on the Aaliyah marriage and talked to other young women who'd been saying they were abused. Uh, protected them, uh, gave them anonymity. We thought he was done on December 21, 2000. And it wasn't until September 27th, 2021, that he was convicted on all charges. It's just, it's not just the slow levers of justice working. It's that like every survivor, they had to figure out what to do about the statute of limitations. Yeah. They were in the past uh, had already expired. And so how is it that we got to this uh, trial in New York? Well, the Eastern District of New York uh, used a really smart strategy that many criticized while we waited for the trial. They tried him under RICO, the racketeering laws. They said that Kelly's entire 30-year musical career was in fact a criminal enterprise designed to promote his brand, but also to satisfy his illegal sexual urges. Now, the Eastern District of New York had used RICO to bring down the Nexium cult, but that was, in addition to a horrible sexual abusive cult, a more traditional pyramid scheme. Right. It, it was it yeah. was, you know, kind of traditional graft merged with bizarro world uh, sexual abuse. You know, with Kelly, Rico enabled them to spread that umbrella so wide that they could bring in cases of sexual abuse and violations of the Mann Act, uh, transporting women and two young men for the first time uh, across state lines for uh, sexually illicit purposes. It allowed them to ignore the statute of limitations and present evidence for five key victims, but 21 women total and two uh, boys that Kelly had abused at age 17. You know, many people said, if this is a criminal enterprise, where are the other members of the enterprise? Why are you only charging the head? It turned out to be really smart because while many names of many enablers, ranging from studio gophers 
to a doctor, one of the most prestigious allergists and immunologists in Chicago, you know, who treated him for free because he was a star, accepted concert tickets, treated his sexually transmitted diseases and ignored uh, while he went to parties and many dinners with Kelly, uh, the young women surrounding Kelly, obviously underage. But he snottily said on the stand a phrase we heard from several men who worked for Kelly. I didn't check their IDs. Uh, we heard that again and again. And we heard, Marcy, from the defense, that wretched, horrible, unconscionable defense of uh, they were asking for it. You know, these women were groupies. They were fame seekers. They were opportunists. They were gold diggers. And the one African-American defense attorney, Devereaux Kanick, uh, asked a half dozen of the victims, weren't you twerking? Weren't you twerking at his concerts? As if, you know, this rump-shaking uh, dance. You know, the judge finally admonished him and said, Mr. Kanick, this is 2021. Would you get yourself in the presence? Kelly had shaken up his defense team shortly before the trial, jettisoning two lawyers based in Chicago in favor of a former sex crimes prosecutor from Michigan, a woman, and Devereaux Kanick, who had won the New York State's uh, largest ever wrongful death conviction against the state for the shooting 41 times by police of Amadou Diallo. These two were not impressive. And rather than focusing on, is it justifiable for the federal government to say that Kelly is the head of an enterprise like a mafia family or a drug gang, they went after the oldest, saddest part of our rape culture legal system, uh, blame the victims. Uh, you know, I mean, you, yeah, you know that. Yeah. I mean, I see, and I wonder if you see, I see a tremendous parallel between the Epstein approach to having his whole system deliver what he expected and R. Kelly. Yeah, in many ways. There was the money, the power. Uh, Weinstein was a star maker, so was Kelly. So many of these young women wanted to be singers, and he had the Midas touch. He had made a star of Aaliyah. You know, he had been sought after as a producer and songwriter by Whitney Houston and Celine Dion all the way up to Lady Gaga. But there's a difference. This is the first time in the Me Too era that we have seen a vindication of the victims uh, and a conviction of a predator where the victims were almost all of them uh, people of color. Right. I completely agree. And, you know, in the movement, the civil rights movement for children right now, people of color have lagged behind uh, in yeah. terms of us helping them. Yeah, many African-American scholars talk about the adultification of prepubescent and pubescent people of color. It, yeah. It's like, yeah. Which is, I mean, it's tragic, but I agree that that is the distinction, which makes it a huge distinction. But, but I also see in this story, this sounded a lot like a cult. You know, I'm wrangling with my editor over the 10,000 words that we are adding to the new edition of the book about the trial. When I first heard some of the parents of his victims and one of the victims, Geronda, uh, who took the stand as the first witness, uh, because she was like nine and a half months pregnant, she gave birth to her fifth child a few days after she got off the stand. Um, when I first heard them 
make comparisons to Charles Manson. I thought I've been covering this story, you know, in total, it was 21 years and, and I've reported on a lot of horrible and unbelievable at first things, uh, but that's a bridge too far. But as I read and reread the 5,000 pages of trial transcripts, um, yeah, the behavior, there's, there's the behavior uh, that Kelly treated his followers to, the chastisements, he called it, the punishments, the rules that he required. Uh, Manson did nothing worse uh, with the family, aside from compelling those young women to murder. And I think, you know, Marcy, it's above my pay grade. I'm a, I'm a music journalist and critic. I think that there are going to be doctoral studies about this for decades to come. Uh, it is very much cult-like behavior. And sadly, you know, it, it the ramp up to this trial begins like the facts that I got in 2000 with an email that I received from a mother, uh, Jonjolin Savage in Georgia in November, 2016. It took me nine months to report that story. She said from day one, Kelly is holding my daughter as part of a cult along with a total of six women. Nine months and two dozen sources on the record and documentations. Uh, and we reported that story in July, 2017. And uh, that helped build the pressure along with two brilliant African-American activists in, in Georgia, Orenike Odele and Kenyette Tisha Barnes started the Mute R. Kelly movement. Uh, the Savage family got help from a civil rights attorney, Gerald Griggs. Uh, they kept the pressure on that led Dream Hampton, the filmmaker, to make Surviving R. Kelly. And then literally, when that was a hit in January 2019, in terms of viewership, uh, within weeks, the federal government began its investigation, almost immediately. But it starts with the Savages, and their daughter is still in Kelly's thrall, still defending him, still posting he's innocent on Instagram. There are others I'm aware of who are still now, I mean, you know, and you say, well, that's ridiculous, right? But think about Squeaky Fromm, who right. stayed loyal to Manson well after he was in prison for life and even took a shot at President Ford. Right. Right. And I mean, th this is what worries me about the cult-like activity, because you've got a patriarchal, uh, rules-driven cult in which the women and the children and the boys yeah. were being um, blessed by being his, you know, followers. Yeah. And uh, and he was the one that would be the official dad who would hand out the what you deserve if you do well. Uh, it, it's all it, it's so much more psychologically, and I, I agree with you on the dissertation concept. Yes, yeah. Yeah. this yeah. is going to be into a lot of that. So well, the, the, the last uh, witness for the prosecution was a forensic psychologist who, who used the term uh, psychological entrapment. One of the earlier witnesses, uh, one of the 17-year-old boys he had abused, simply said he'd been brainwashed. But as far as that daddy thing, the defense, uh, Devereaux Canick, in his closing argument, said, Mike Pence calls his wife mother. Uh, what's wrong with demanding that people call you daddy? And it's like, wow. Yeah. 
I mean, if that's all you have, maybe you should start over. That is not a good argument. Well, and it wasn't all he had. He also compared Kelly to Martin Luther King Jr. and summoned the courage of uh, uh, people of conscience in the civil rights era and said, you know, I'm just trying to stand up for these American freedoms. And that's all Kelly is trying to do. Yeah. I mean, everybody thinks of themselves as someone who can persuade the world with lies. And, you know, we've made that possible. But well, yeah, it worked for 30 years. It worked for 30 years. Right. Um, I mean, there's no success like success. It's really potent. But, you know, I want to switch over and talk to you as a music critic. What do we do about the output of people like Michael Jackson, R. Kelly? artistically so talented, mm-hmm. but tainted with these cult-like groups yeah. around them that resulted in children suffering. What is your view on that? I think it's a really complicated question about when we can separate the art and the artist. Mm-hmm. Obviously, as a journalist and as a lover of the arts, uh, that's what a critic is. You know, the idea of uh, burning records in the town square, I think we all disapprove of that notion. Right. Um, I, I am glad Mein Kampf is in print because people need to study where that evil came from. Perhaps it should be behind the desk at the library in a locked cabinet that you have to request, right? Um, here's how I come down, Marcy, and I have this discussion every semester with my students at Columbia College. I don't think there's a right or a wrong in the African-American community. And the, the thing about Kelly is you can't separate this story from race because he was always primarily a black superstar, unknown uh, aside from I believe I can fly and Space Jam to the white audience. So we have uh, two generations of black fans who say, I believe I can fly played at my kids kindergarten graduation and step in the name of love was my wedding song and ignition remix powered every family barbecue I've ever been to. So in some ways that music is theirs as much as it is his. Um, And and I don't think uh, that anybody who says I abhor what he did, but I still enjoy the music. I don't think they're wrong any more than I don't think anyone's wrong if they say I have a violent reaction whenever I hear Kelly's music. And if the DJ will not take it off, I leave that wedding. I leave that party. I leave wherever. Um, I, I, I think uh, that that you know, you have to be aware because the damage this man did, but those examples where we can't separate the art and the artist, because a lot of horrible people, you know, uh, make great art. And I think 99% of the time we can separate those. The dividing line for me is when the art is about the misdeeds. So I have no problem listening to Michael Jackson or the Jackson 5 up until the last two albums of Jackson's career, when he is protesting his innocence, media and the courts, you are trying to crucify me like you crucified the Lord, of charges that are entirely credible. Uh, When he is taking on the prosecutor in Santa Barbara County, California, who tried him uh, for abuse of two underage boys, we now know that there's at least four, those two albums, he is singing about his crimes. Um, You know, 
I really like Midnight in Paris. It helps for me that Woody Allen is not in it. I'm a history <laughs> fan. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a Francophile, you know, da-da, and, and, and Dali, and, and Hemingway, let's fight, right? Um, but Manhattan, that is about a 40-something, 50-something uh, comedian chasing a high school girl. It is in the art. I believe Dylan Farrow. Uh, I have read the reporting. It is rock solid, in my opinion. Now, Kelly's entire career is an unfettered celebration of a sort of hedonism that says, I will take my pleasure where I desire, and I do not care who I hurt. So it's a really, it's a much more complicated situation, aside from the 10% of his music, which is very spiritual, but then he is falling to his knees and praying to the Lord in heaven saying, forgive me for my sins. Um, He never names them. Now we know (laughs) with uh, 45 witnesses and hundreds of pieces of evidence what those sins exactly were. So that's a tricky situation. Should it be streaming? Should it be available for sale? I honestly don't know the answer to that question. And I think it's on every single individual listener to judge for herself. Right. I mean, you know, as a think tank, you know, we worry about the zeitgeist around abusing children yeah right and how do you and and it's not that we want to endorse uh cancel culture that's not the point the point is what are the messages that are getting out there from adults to our children about what's appropriate well this is going to send chills down your spine marcy um you know in the weeks since the verdict According to Rolling Stone, sales of Kelly's physical product, vinyl albums and CDs, have increased more than 500%, and streams of his music have increased 22%. And I think of two quotes. I think of a quote from his half-brother, Carrie. Carrie told me once, that sick MFer is talking to other sick MFers on his level. In other words, the pedophile is talking to the pedophiles. And you are not embracing that music despite his crimes. You are embracing that music because of them. And then I think of Kelly, uh, his last birthday party as a free man. And there's a video on YouTube and cigar in one hand and a glass of cognac in the other. He says, they should have done this shit 30 years ago. I done already injected my music into the world. And I think before we were all happy to be injected with vaccines. Right. The, the use of that verb is very phallic and very violent. Yeah. And so we have this very troublesome catalog. I mean, what's the name of the album he wrote for Aaliyah while he was sexually abusing her at 15? We heard on the stand that that actually started at 13 or 14. He wrote that album and he titled it, Age Ain't Nothing But a Number. So his musical career is a confession of his crimes or a celebration of them. So we have a particularly thorny dilemma there. It's, you know, it's, it's so interesting to me because we're really struggling getting the message out to people of color about there's a possibility for justice uh, if you've been sexually abused, we, we get these laws, the statute of limitations rolled back. There's a lot of cultural pushback in the community to coming forward and naming uh, someone who is a person of color. 
so my question is, well, how do we protect kids? And it seems to me those messages in the music, I would never um, silence or censor music, but parents should be able to know what is going to be good for their kids to hear that's out there and you get this huge stardom. So where did his stardom come from that gave him all this power? What, what was his, you know, power? Well, you know, you know Marcy, uh, to, to quote the who, the kids are all right. Um, the verdict came down for me on uh, Monday, the September 27th. I was in between my two giant first year lecture classes, music and media in Chicago. I had 150 students and then 150 students. I had pre-written two columns for the New Yorker uh, that were going to have to be tweaked as soon as the verdict came in, one of which will now thankfully never be read because we got the result that uh, anybody with a conscience would have hoped for. And I mentioned to the second class, I was going to be a little distracted. I was having to deal with this. And they rose and gave the conviction a standing ovation. Now, these are 18 and 17 year old first year students in college. They were not born yet when Kelly's biggest hit was on top of the charts, Ignition Remix. They have only known him throughout his entire career as a uh, unconvicted until that day, sexual predator. We are talking about their parents and times are changing. Times are changing. And there is no tolerance anymore for uh, Bill Cosby starting out today, R. Kelly starting out today, even in the Black community, I don't think they'd get away with it. The Black community, as you and I speak today, is having a a spirited on both sides debate about Dave Chappelle punching down, in his own words, and making fun of uh, LGBTQ people in his comedy, which uh, as many Black fans of him are saying, is not funny, is not comedy, as are saying Dave should be able to say whatever he wants. These discussions are happening. Right, right. Well, I I do think that, uh, especially comedians, stand-up comedians, be able to say whatever they want. But still, what about the fact that uh, these buried messages do scare me in a way? I didn't know that Michael Jackson's, you know, last two albums... And, and they're not my favorite music of his anyway. I mean, no, no, they, you know, in, in I, his case, they conveniently suck. Those right. are the worst albums of his career. So right. we can still enjoy uh, Up Against the Wall and the Jackson Five without qualms. But Kelly, it was there from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, um, are there any other parallels that you're seeing now in the music industry in terms of the possibility of abuses of power by the artist and really, really vulnerable teenagers? I mean, or, or is this just so common that R. Kelly just took it to a new level? It's not that it was a new thing. I think uh, R. Kelly took it to a new level by acting it out. You know, I was having this debate uh, in my columns in the 90s about Eminem's music. And I went to a high school in Chicago and sat with 10 uh, high schoolers, you know, uh, men and women, black and white. And, you know, they were able to discern that his violent, misogynistic, homophobic fantasies, you know, I mean, 
Eminem had uh, three or four songs where he fantasized brutally killing his ex-wife while his daughter sat in the car and watched, Um, you know, but they were like, oh yeah, that, I mean, they treated it like, you know, Halloween, uh, the movie with Jamie Lee Curtis, or they treated it like a comic book or a violent video game. And they're like, yeah, we, you know, what, what is that shit? I know that shit. I like his music. Um, The kids are always going to figure it out. I, I think, um, you know, it is rare indeed. I don't think art drives people to commit the sort of horrible crimes that we saw Kelly commit. You know, it, 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 that's an age-old uh, controversy. But I'll tell you right now that streaming on Spotify and available for download on Apple and for sale on Amazon, we have the music of Charles Manson and David Koresh. Um, you know, who listens to that? Disturbed individuals who want to celebrate that evil. But even they, we have yet to see a case, are, are going out and replicating that evil. And I think Kelly's music in the future is going to be in that, that realm of just twisted culture that most of us do not want to think about, much less embrace. I, I really hope so. I, I mean, the, the other set of victims that came out as part of this trial were the relatives of the victims. Yeah. And was it the uncle of Aliyah who came out and said, I can't, if I'd known this, I would have protected her? Um, yeah, he said several times, Barry Hankerson, Aliyah's uncle, and, and uh, ran her record company, also managed Kelly. He said several times that if he'd have known about this, he'd have killed Kelly, but he prayed on it with Minister Louis Farrakhan, and uh, they said God will take care of him. You know, look, Marcy, there are conflicting agendas of so many of these parents wanted their daughter to be a star. And they had heard things about Kelly, but I'm going to be there by her side the whole time. It's not going to happen to us. We know how the predator separates the victim from the family. We know master manipulator and master of lies, right? The Catholic Church has taught us that. Any any psychologist who's ever studied a criminal sexual predator would tell you how good they are at doing what they do. And so, you know, in many cases, should the parents have shown better judgment? Yes. In retrospect, you know, should uh, Barry Hankerson have shown better judgment? He continued to marry Kelly for, uh, manage Kelly for a good five and a half years after he married the man's niece, right? You know, but during the trial, a three-story billboard just across the East River from the courthouse at Cadman Plaza in Brooklyn went up, and it was a picture of Aaliyah celebrating the reissue of her music, and it said, Aaliyah is coming. And that was not an accident. You know, it was it was it was 25 years before her name was mentioned in a criminal court of law Uh, after, you know, you got to put this in perspective. This is two of the biggest pop stars at the moment in 1994, and the whole world turned a blind eye that something was going on when Jerry Lee Lewis at age 22 married 13 year old second cousin Myra Gale Brown, his career, according to Brown. In an interview in 2014, as an old lady, older even than me and you, Marcy, (laughs) she said, you know, uh, my husband's career took a nosedive right into the concrete. And then that marriage lasted a couple of decades, right? I'm not saying it was right, you know, and you can say different times, it was the South, you know. But yeah. 
one marriage, one girl. This was a man whose predation had already started before Aaliyah, and it continued 25 years after. It's, uh, it, it is truly a singular case in, in, in the annals of crime and the annals of popular culture. Well, let's close by, I'm just going to repeat what um, Child USA always says to parents, which is, uh, it's what you just said, mm. that if someone wants to sexually abuse your child, they're going to groom you first, and mm. they're going to try to get access, and the child does not have the ability to withstand it. Um, and yeah. so this is, this is just another example of the systemic quality of child sex abuse in this culture. R. Kelly is just an incredible story, but especially when you pair it with your sensitivity to the music and that he was including those messages, Yeah, that's gonna make a lot of people hit themselves on the head and say, wow, I, I should have seen that. I wish I'd seen that. Yeah, you know, it's um, music has this power to touch a part of our soul that no other art form reaches. I don't think a filmmaker could have made uh, films successfully for 30 years and gotten away with the subject matter Kelly did, a subject matter that was mirroring real crimes. Uh, there's something special about music and something we have to be aware of. But it, yeah, you know, and that's going to linger. And the music industry, I'll tell you what Dream Hampton said, who was the driving force for surviving R. Kelly. And this had just never occurred to me because I don't, you know, I was thinking as a reporter and I'm thinking as a music critic, you know, and Dream said, we should hold Jive Records and its founder, Clive Calder, who sits on an island in the Caymans, having sold his company for $2.7 billion. And his the money he made from Kelly was not the only questionable money. He's the label to put out Britney Spears and look at that troubled young woman. And in sync and the Backstreet Boys, who were abused sexually by their manager, Lou Pearlman. Uh, Jive is a label that has to answer. Jive got bought by RCA, which got bought by Sony Music. You know, Dream said, let's go to the Caymans and ring this guy's doorbell and let's go to Sony Music and RCA and ring their doorbells and let's set up a fund for reparations for these victims, for the money that these companies made while this victimization continued for 30 years. And I thought that was a brilliant, brilliant idea. Well, especially as I understand it, um, R. Kelly does not have assets at this point that are meaningful enough to sue him civilly. I, I believe there's almost nothing left. You know, he it was fire sale for years as he continued to pay off young women. And that's a whole other topic, the end non-disclosure issue. Um, you know, the courts are increasingly saying this is not worth the paper it's written on. But it's a tool that Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby used effectively, among others, for many years. And Kelly used effectively. By his own admission, quote, I am a broke-ass legend. Uh, I believe that if he had the money he had when he thwarted justice in Chicago in 2008, uh, he would not have been convicted. If he, if he didn't, if he couldn't afford better than this clown car defense team that he had, uh, it's entirely possible. Given the unique, let's try him as an enterprise. You know, look, I'm from Jersey, Marcy, right? Where, where you know, you know, Philadelphia, Jersey, it's the same thing, right? I said. Hey, if they're calling him the Godfather, 
where's Tessio and Clemenza? <laughs> you know, but they got him. It worked. So, so what's next for R. Kelly? I take it that's not the last criminal trial that could happen. Uh, those are big question marks. There is a second federal case from the Northern District of Illinois, which focuses on the subversion of justice in the 2008 trial that names five uh, underage women as victims on four videotapes. Uh, there's a state of Illinois case, a state of Minnesota case. Uh, there'll be appeals. There may well be uh, further charges of his enablers, because many names were mentioned in 5,000 pages of trial transcript. You know, this is going to go on and on and on. But I think all of that, Marcy, is going to be footnotes. Yeah. They're footnotes. He has been convicted of all charges. He is facing life in prison. They finally got him after 30 years of justice being uh, subverted here. Yeah, all the rest, uh, you know, I say let the law students follow that. Let the doctoral candidates in psychology and sociology figure out the meaning of uh, his abilities to draw people into this destructive cult. I'll be glad to be done with it. And um, I just wonder how those women heal because the music remains a bit ubiquitous and triggering. And, uh, and I think the more constructive question is how does this never happen again? And uh, you've got to believe women. I mean, it's the same answer to all of our rape culture, right? Well, and you've got to make the law so they can go to court. Um, you yep. just have to break down these yep. statute of limitations. That's the the key procedural barrier that's in front of them. Well, but you know, you know, but the irony is, even if he had been acquitted of uh, the RICO charge, which mm -hmm. is by far the biggest, they got him on eight violations of the Mann Act. That law has been in place since the early 50s, before the words sex trafficking ever was used. Right. And it had racist origins in yes. part. You know, the first two convicted under it were Chuck Berry for transporting a 14-year-old sex worker across state lines while he was on tour, and Jack Johnson, for the sin, a boxer, for the sin of marrying a white woman. Mm -hmm. All right. Nevertheless, this old, creaky law with roots in questionable politics of why it was ever passed, it worked. And well, it continues it, to work. It only worked because it was being co-opted into RICO. It's RICO that made the difference. No, 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 no. They were completely separate. The It was one count of the racketeering and eight counts of Man Act. And even if the judge had thrown out the RICO uh, statute early on, saying, as I did, He's a godfather. Where's everybody else? This is nonsense. He was still convicted. The jury convicted him on, on all counts under the Man Act. How, uh, so I'm just curious, how did he, how did they get around the, um, I can see how they got around. Well, they had, they had two victims for whom the statute of limitations had not expired. There, there you go. There you so go. That, that, that's, yeah, I knew that's where the you're. The Man Act has a very short statute of limitations. And yeah. so, so those two, those counts were, were guilty. Yeah, because and he literally continued his crimes until the day he was arrested in yeah. 2019. They start in 1991 and they continue until 2019. So, so it's yeah. really the miracle of having some recent victims. And, but if the victims over time, had, there had been no statute of limitations, state, federal, right, on, on these kinds of crimes, then it just, it would have been a lot more women and a lot more claims. Yeah. Um, 
And so that seems to me, but I want to go back to, and, and then I, I know we've got to, I've got to let you go. You, you have other things to do, but I love the idea of Jive Records or the music mm-hmm. industry being the source because the music industry found a way for a period of time to have work made for hire agreements where artists were getting very little except the very top of the top and also their capacity to have the money flow to them and increase to them and the artists not to really cut some very good deals. And so the fact that he's got nothing to, to pay, um, I do think it's systemic that uh, it's, it's all players in this. So I completely agree with you that if Jive's records made billions, then they have some money available to do a compensation program for these victims. And, yeah. the only, and you asked about healing, they need lifelong therapy. Yeah, that's yeah. what they need. And that's why they need to be able to get compensation so that they can stay on an even keel for the rest of their lives. It's no, this, this is true. It was an entire system that enabled him. And even if he is broke, having paid off uh, so many women for so long and fought these legal battles, you know, that was never where the big money was. Because I, I have heard that while he made half a billion dollars personally over his 30-year career, Jive Records made two or three billion. Absolutely. You know, and again, Jive is part of Sony. And Sony, we know, has money. You know, you, you well, don't follow the money. <laughs> and they have a problem here. They have stars that are being knocked down because they sexually trafficked girls yeah. and boys so news to the the record industry um, yeah well and they were named in, in lawsuits they were often named in lawsuits and yeah. so the you know this was just an artist we just put out the records that defense is tissue paper thin okay. uh, when you're being sued uh, i don't care how big your global corporation is when you've been named in a 10 million dollar lawsuit for damages by a 15-year-old girl charging that Kelly was orchestrating group scenes with other 15- and 14-year-old girls. That crosses your desk. You are aware of that. So don't give me that nonsense. Exactly. Exactly. So, well, this has been so illuminating and so fun. Thank you so much. You bet, Martin. Well, thank you for the work that, that your group does. It's really important. We're getting there. So thank you so much on behalf of Child USA and keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Thanks so much for joining us today. You can always find more cutting edge information about the protection of children at childusa.org. And we're always interested in your thoughts about what needs to be done for children. Thanks so much. We'll see you next podcast.